Well, we thought we'd give the, the pastor a, a week off, and uh, Seth was supposed to be the second-string quarterback, but then Seth got COVID on about Thursday, and so now you are privileged to uh, see the third-string quarterback. <laughs> so we'll see how this goes. Uh, the topic of, of my sermon is the road to Emmaus, and I, I picked the the title of it, of On the Road Again, um, Willie Nelson's song, On the Road Again, On the Road Again, I Just Can't Wait to Get On the Road Again. I'm sure you've heard it once or twice or four or five or 20 times. It's an interesting song, and there's a background on it, and the background that I thought was pretty interesting was when Willie wrote the uh, lyrics to that, he submitted it to the, um, to the record company, and the, uh, the record company executives were very, very concerned about it. So they got Willie to, um, uh, in a meeting, and they said, Willie, we, we have a real problem here. And the problem is, is that the words, um, man, they just don't mean anything. And we're really worried that this song is not going to sell very well. Well, Willie said, uh, don't worry about that. And he said, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put the, the words to, to music and it will sell, and uh, so it did. It was a well-established star, and so they had to let him go ahead and write the, uh, uh, release the song and produce it. And it became, as you know, a solid gold record. So it was a, uh, a, quite a hit, and I thought we'd use that to get on the road to Emmaus uh, again. So if you'd uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and that's what we're gonna cover, the road to Emmaus, on the road again, getting back on it. <clears throat> and also, if you look in your, uh, in your uh, handout, you'll see an outline there, there, and a, you'll see there are six stopping points that we have that will stop on the road. So let's go through and we'll read our passage. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24. And behold, on that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which was 60 stadia from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they came to a stop, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you possibly the only one living near Jerusalem who does not know about the things that happened here in these days? And he said to them, What sort of things? And they said to him, Those about Jesus the Nazarene who proved to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us left us bewildered. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that, that he was alive. And so some of those who were sent with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
And he said to them, You foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have, have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, to come into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. And so they strongly urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And it came about when he had reclined at the table with them, that he took the bread and blessed it, and he, be, and he broke it, and began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them, saying, The Lord really has risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he recognized, how he was recognized by them at the breaking of bread. So we have the, the, uh, the road that we're going to go down, and again, there's the, the six stopping points on your outline, and what we'll do is go down the road, and um, we'll stop at each of those stopping points. I'll put the scriptures that I'll be using behind each of the stopping points, so in the event that I know some of you are good Bible students and want to take it home and study further, that you'll have an um, a outline there that you can look at. And uh, one of the things that I'll, I'll say is that I'm not going to uh, go in exactly the same order. I'll be jumping around a bit, won't have time to cover all the verses, but uh, we'll try and, and cover the main points of the story. So our stopping point number one, um, it starts in verse 13, and, and it says, And behold, on the very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, which was 60 stadia. That 60 stadia is about uh, seven miles, 10 kilometers. So you're talking about um, a pretty good trek on, on foot. Back then, they didn't have automobiles. For us, it would be like a suburb, 10, 15-minute drive away. But for them, it was a very long journey. Emmaus was a small village. Um, and they were walking home, and uh, this, they were walking home, and this was a walk that was done in a very slow fashion. You might call it the loser's walk. These guys had lost something. And you can always tell the losers, because in a ball game, you can go, go to the fourth quarter at the very end, the very final gun, and you can see, by the way, the two teams walk off the field, which one won and which one's lost. The losers have a very slow gait about them, and whatever they're carrying, it seems like 200 pounds. That's the kind of walk that these guys were taking, shoulders down, and I'll bet that it took more than three hours. They were dejected, despondent, and depressed, and things slowed down quite a bit. And, uh, and I can relate to that. I, I, I can relate that uh, watching football games. I remember, how many LSU fans do we have here? No Michigan fans, LSU fans. <laughs> Remember 2011, what took place there? How we had a national champion going into the national championship game. We had LSU undefeated. They had gone into Alabama and beaten those dirty red shirts in Birmingham, something that is, seldom takes place. 
And they were the number one team. And uh, going to the national championship, we know they matched up with, guess who? The dreaded Nick Saban and those dirty red shirts again. But this time, we're going to get them on our territory in the Superdome. And so we were all salivating, thinking, we got them now. Well, on about the fourth quarter, about midway, you saw the purple and gold shirts, shirted fans walking out, filing out with that slow loser's walk. They had lost big time, 21-0, and their hopes had been dashed. The highest hopes to the lowest point in all of three hours. That's very similar to what these guys had experienced. They were, had the highest highs to the lowest lows in a short period of time. So stopping point number two, what had they lost? In their minds, they had lost everything. Verse 19, and he, this stranger that just shows up, said to them, what sort of things were you talking about? And they said to him, those about Jesus of the Nazarene who prayed to be a prophet, mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people. And now the chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and crucified him. The stranger, he asked an open-ended question, give me a summary of everything that had taken place. And in their summary, they recognized Jesus as a prophet. And nothing that had taken place, including the crucifixion and death of this man, minimized that or took that away. He proved himself to be mighty by his words and his works, he didn't just talk the talk, and his talk, his words were lofty, dramatic, and inspiring. Words of knowledge, understanding, and truth. But he also walked the walk. He lived it out. His speaking power was clearly demonstrated by his working power. Miracles, signs, and wonders. He said it all, and he did it all. This man was a prophet of God. But, they said, but, verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They lost something. That word, but, in other words, everything confirmed our faith to him that he was a mighty prophet, but our faith in him as the redeemer, as the Messiah, the promised one, it was destroyed. What a difference a week makes. Just the week before, Palm Sunday, all the people with the palms and the palms showing great respect, victory, peace, laying those palms down in front of the, the little colt that he was riding on, the colt that he was riding on symbolized the Messiah bring, being brought into Jerusalem, coming in in triumph. All the people shouting, Hosanna in the highest, son of David, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's the greeting that you present to the Messiah. All of that, they were recognized and they said, oh boy, we have the one. He is the one. He's going to restore Israel to its superpower status. The son of David. He's going to take David's throne. And you have to remember, back at David's time, David was the chief man. He was the, the king of kings at the time. Israel ruled all the nations, and that was what was going to happen again. Rome was going to be thrown out. And boy, they were dastardly people that occupied the territory. You protected your daughters. At any point, they could come knock on the door after some zealot may have murdered someone, one of the Roman soldiers, and said, we can't find the guy, so we're going to crucify 10 of you to show you as an example. That's what the kind of oppression they lived under. But no, this Messiah, this one that they had all the hope in, he was going to restore Israel. 
And we followers, the ones that were close to Jesus, hey, when the kingdom's set up, we're going to be given some great, great powers of authority. We're going to go from being just fishermen and, and laborers to maybe having an administrative position. We won't be poor again. So they had very, very, very high hopes. James and John's mom, if you remember from Scripture, even tried to negotiate a high position for her son, the, her sons of thunder. But the religious rulers, they killed him. They crucified him. They proved to us that he wasn't the Messiah. He's not the one. His death showed us that he was not the promised one. Turn out the lights, the party's over. What have you lost that has devastated you like that? I mean, going around in life two or three times like many of you have, we've all lost something. But the mighty one is right here, just like Cleopas, that that uh, one of the persons and his buddy, the unnamed buddy, they didn't realize that the mighty one was the one that was right beside them. The Lord Jesus, he's right beside us and he knows our burden, whatever that burden is. It could be physical, could be something going on with health in us, it could be something financial, having lost some kind of a business transaction or a bankruptcy or whatever it is, and even spiritual, a spiritual depth, he's right beside us. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 uh, says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That yoke, that piece of wood, that, that long piece of wood that has two curves in it, uh, one that fits over the shoulder of, of, of two oxen so that the strong oxen can help the weak oxen, pull that cart out of the ditch. That's the burden that, that Jesus offers us. He says, my burden is light. In other words, I'll pull the heavy load and you'll have the light burden. It's an old Bill Withers song that I love so much. It goes like this. Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow. But if we are wise, we know there's always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. If there's a load that you have to bear that you can't carry, I'm right up the road. I'll share your load if you just call on me. We take the Lord's yoke. That is the light one, and he leads us. Stopping point number three, the big picture, the whole picture. Verse 25. And he said to them, You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come in his glory? You foolish men. Rather poetic. The stranger had first inquired of them regarding their conversation. Um, these were his first words to them. In verse 17, he said to them, What are the words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they came to a stop looking sad. One of them, Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one living near Jerusalem who does not know about the things that happened here in these days? In other words, are you numb? You've been living under a rock? It was quite a derogatory statement that he made. The Passover celebration was very much like, I guess you might say, our Mardi Gras. People came from all over the world, and they packed into this one city, Jerusalem. The city grew to be four and five times its size, and the center was just like the French Quarter, in the sense that the temple became the center of activity, and people were shoulder to shoulder there. 
And if something took place, it was impossible for you to not know what had taken place. And certainly an event like this Jesus of Nazareth and what happened to him um, would have been known by everyone. It was the center of the Passover. The stranger, though, now identifies Cleo and his buddy. They're the foolish ones, he says. And worse than that, they were slow of heart to believe all of what the prophets had said about the Messiah. He said, you men, you guys are the ones who really missed out on this event. And he did this with a probing question. He said to them, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come into his glory? Wasn't that a necessary part? The problem in these two, two guys is they missed the mark on the big picture. They saw the glory of the Messiah and what it would mean to Israel and to them, but they never saw what Isaiah saw and wrote. They never saw what Zechariah wrote, and they never saw what Isaiah wrote. This same Messiah, who would restore Israel to its potential position, is the same one who would be the Lamb of God, sacrificed for Israel and for the world. I think the message for us in this passage is that uh, we need to absorb the full counsel of God. That means becoming intimate, not just with the New Testament, but intimate with the Old Testament also. I think the message to us is that one of the great dangers that we have today from teachers who take extreme positions and tell us that, well, you know, the Old Testament is it's just for the Jews, and the New Testament is for you. And there's others that take an even more extreme position. And they tell us, well, it's the Old Testament and a good portion of the New, and only some of the books by Paul are just for you as Christians. No, we must get the whole picture, the entire picture. The God of the Old Testament and his dealings with Israel is the same God as the God of the New Testament and his dealings with the church. The Jew and the Gentile are both individually saved by grace through faith back in the time of Christ as they are today. I was saved by that same way, and so were you. We were saved by grace through faith. Stopping point number four, exegesis. When I first heard that word exegesis as a new believer, I thought they were saying extra Jesus. <laughs> Never quite understood that one. The word exegesis, what does that mean? In the, it's the critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of Scripture. It's exposition, expository teaching, exposing the text and explaining it. And that's what we try and do in a Bible church. What I'm trying to do right now is to expose the text and explain it. That's what we're trying to do over in adult education and youth education and even the children education. Expose the text, break it open, fillet it, and explain what it means. But... What, what took place here is the stranger was exegeting Jesus as they walked. Can't you just see the, the stranger explaining to these guys? I could just see and, and hear what he would say. When Jesus confronted the crowd and when they, they said, we follow the law of Moses, we follow Moses, he's our leader. What did Jesus say? Do you remember that, you two? Jesus told them, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The stranger exegeted Jesus. He explained himself in the Old Testament. The scrolls of Scripture begin with the Pentateuch, the opening cover. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it closes with the prophets, guys like we've been studying, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. 
and then all the scrolls in between that. First and Second Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and, and um, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and poems, all of that. The common thread that runs through all of these, these scrolls, what we now have as our Bible, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Him. It's the Messiah. What did the stranger point out to them? This was a good three-hour walk, and there's no way, I think, that, the, the, this that he could cover every scroll that speaks of the one to come. But the stranger did point out to them all the many areas of, of Scripture, of the scrolls that reveal the Messiah. Here's just a few of those, and I picked out five from the first five books of Genesis, uh, of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books, the Law of Moses. In Genesis 3.15, immediately after, after the fall, what do we see there? Well, we see God cursing the serpent, and he said that this woman is going to produce a seed, and the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, but you're going to bruise his heel. I could see him telling these two disciples, the heel, look at the heel. You just saw it. It was crucified. What, how did they crucify? Well, what they did, and, and if you look at crucifixes today where they still have Jesus on the cross, and he's not on the cross anymore. He died once for all. But if you see some of those pictures, you'll see where the feet are lapped one over the other and a nail driven through the center. That's not how they did it. They took the heel, the right heel, and they put it on one side of the post and drove a stake through the side of the heel into the post. Then they did the other heel on the other side of the post and drove the other nail through that. That's the bruising of the heel. And that's the Messiah. You just witnessed that, you two, you two disciples. You saw that. That's the Messiah. That's what the picture was given there. And how about in the book of Exodus, the angel of the Lord speaking from the burning bush. I am, I am, I am that I am. And what did Jesus say when confronted by the Sadducees? He said, before Abraham was... I am. That's your Messiah. The Messiah was in the Old Testament. In Exodus, Leviticus 16, 22, the goat, the goat shall bear all of the sins of the people on itself. The goat was a picture of the Messiah. You guys know that in the temple. You've seen the, the scapegoat. That's what the scapegoat signifies. That's exactly what Jesus did. The sins of the, the, that year were poured up, uh, put upon that goat as he was sent out. Or in Numbers 21:49, where the brazen snake, the bronze-covered snake, this detestable thing, was lifted up because the people were bitten by, this, by these serpents. And, and what God said, well, raise up a, a brazen, a bronze snake, bronze being judgment, raise that up so that the people can look at that detestable thing and by that be healed. It was sin that bit them, and they would look at sin being lifted up, and that was exactly what Jesus said. He said, just like the brazen serpent, I'm going to be lifted up. I'll be the picture of sin, and people will look at me as if I'm the detestable one. And then the last book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 18:15, Moses prophesied that he would raise up a prophet just like him among the Israelites. That was the Messiah. He would he would not just be a prophet, but he would be the one who would be, become the advocate between God and the people. Remember Jesus praying for his sheep? The Messiah is just like Moses. And it goes on and on. Melchizedek, the royal priest, a type of our Messiah. Abraham offering his beloved son on the sacrificial altar. 
Jonah in the belly of the whale, dead three days, the suffering servant in Isaiah, the presentation of, of himself on the colt of a donkey in Zechariah, the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father in Psalms, and the Son of Man before the throne of God in Daniel, all throughout, all throughout the Old Testament. Stopping point number five, something's burning. Can you imagine the exegesis and the expository teaching of the stranger about the Messiah and how clearly he wove the reality of Jesus as the Messiah into the thinking and understanding of these two guys? Verse 32, they said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road? while he was explaining the scriptures to us, their hearts were ablaze. They were smoking. Smoking because he explained the word of God. This was the living word of God exegeting the written word of God. The living word of God, the Lord Jesus, explaining himself in the written word of God. Wouldn't you have loved to have been on that walk? Three hours of that. I would give anything for that. But what about you? Does your heart Catch fire still when God's word is preached. If your heart has never been set ablaze by the word of God, there's something terribly wrong. And if that's the case, I'm saying never been set afire. You need to see the pastor or one of the elders, and, and one of us will be able to help you. Or maybe it's been lit up at one point, but you kind of crawl into the Sunday service and sit there, and it's kind of a yawner, and you sort of get your cha-ching, your ticket punch for attending service that day. Maybe the wood is damp. Maybe the powder has become damp. Our job is to keep the, the wood absolutely dry so that the Holy Spirit, who's in us, will be able to take the message and light the fire. But if we grieve the Holy Spirit through sin and it's unreconciled, that, that wood remains damp, and it's up to us to get that, that straightened out. We've got to keep the the uh, wood dry for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there in us, and one of his functions is to take the words of a speaker, even one like me, a goofy speaker, and when that word comes out right, he takes it inside of you and says, yes, that's truth. And that truth, that warmth that the Holy Spirit's there, lights the fire and leaves you warm and hungry for more. It's our responsibility to keep the wood dry. And as we round the corner, the last stopping point, as many as received him. Verse 29, and so they strongly urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is get, getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Traveling at night back in those days was very, very dangerous. Traveling at night by yourself, you were, you were a supreme target. So Cleopas and his buddy insisted that this stranger stay with them. It was the custom to welcome strangers into your home and to offer them protection and comfort. In that part of the world, it was an insult to refuse uh, hospitality. But it was when he was inside, when, when this stranger was inside, breaking bread with them, sharing a meal, and the comfort that goes with it, that's when he revealed himself to them. And this reminds me of the closing passage of the message of, to the seven churches in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and opens the door, I will come into him 
and will break bread with him, and he with me. It's in those quiet, very, very quiet, intimate moments that the Lord Jesus progressively reveals himself. It's in those moments in the morning time, and I today still take that first mug of coffee and my Bible, and that's the time that he and I sit together. It's the progressive revelation of Jesus. The heart is open, the time is taken, and he comes in and he breaks bread with me. Let me leave you with one scripture written at least a thousand years. This is a thousand years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of Man, the Son of God. It's a prophecy of his coming. It comes from Psalm, verse 40, uh, Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, and it says this. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scrolls of the book it is written of me. Behold, I come. In the scrolls of the book it is written of me. Just like he said to Cleopas and his friend, it's all about me. Our Lord, Help us to give your word its, its rightful place in our lives, in our homes, and in our hearts. Educate us, edify us, but also light us up, Lord, with the fire from your word. Because of this, it's in the name of the one who saved us and who guides us day by day. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Amen.